Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full crew here in the studio. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Philip. Hey, Brad. Brian. Good morning, Brad. And we've got our podcast producer, Jessica Jensen, who's on with us today. Hi, Jess. Hi. We're going to have Jess tell us a little bit. She took a trip, so we want to hear a little bit more about her and the trip that she took. And we're also going to talk about how to separate should you separate your heifers or your first calvers from your mature cows as it gets to this time of year should you or should you not have a calving barn and then we're going to catch up with callahan again about learning a little bit about what's new with the eid technology before we get into that guys it's that time of year if you had a direct line to santa and santa said he will fill your stocking with one candy bar as many of you want to that candy bar, but only a single candy bar or candy, what are you going to have him put in there, Bob? Well, actually, Santa usually does bring me a candy bar, and it's the same one every year. It's the one I want. It's a Hershey's with almonds, just a regular old chocolate with almonds. You're the one. I wondered why they put almonds in those. Yeah, You're the reason. I am the reason, and Santa knows. Yeah. All right. Philip? It'd have to either be a Snickers or a Butterfinger. You have to pick one. That's part of, oh, that's part of the Oh, come on. Oh, probably the Butterfinger. Butterfinger. Brian's given I, this a lot of thought. Yeah, I am. I, ha- I have two, and I'm, it's, it's a tough narrow down. I'll, I will do Almond Joy. Oh, Almond Joy. Was it Mounds or Almond Joy? No, it's Almond Joy. Not Mounds. Almond Joy. Sometimes you feel like a nut. No. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Jess? Mine is hands down a cookies and cream candy bar from Hershey's. Oh. Cream Hershey's. There you go. Those are all good. Excellent. Well, Jess, tell us about you. You were just able to get back from a trip that you took as part of your school. But tell us a little bit about you and then tell us about the trip you took. So my name is Jessica Jensen and I am a Hereford breeder from North Central Kansas or Cortland, Kansas. And I am a junior in ag communications and a minor with ag sales. And I just picked up a minor in hospitality because, you know, I don't want to leave college yet. I actually got to take a trip with AgCom and Ag Ed in Ireland. Um, and Ireland is actually like the size of Indiana, if that puts it into perspective for you guys. We left Friday before Thanksgiving and got back Sunday before school started. So we were there for nine days and we got a tour from museums. We went to diff- we went to three different farms and just kind of like experienced ag over there. And we started in Dublin and worked our way down to Cork and then back to Galloway and then back to Dublin. But yeah, it was kind of cool to just see ag over there and experience all of that. It's also really green there all the year, like all year long. What, what was the biggest difference that you saw in ag there compared to ag here? So it obviously doesn't get very cold there. So they keep their cattle out and like sheep and everything for 10 months out of the year. And then they put them in the barns for two months. Well, their barns, like our barns, usually bedded down, you know, and have hay and straw and stuff in them. Well, they just put them on these like wooden slats, but they're like padded. And they just stay in those barns for two months and then they kick them back out. So they do everything in these barns. That was the main difference I saw because like we went to a dairy farm a sheep farm, and then like a diversified farm is what our teacher called it because it was very diverse. And they all had cattle and they all put them. But they also have a lot of Belgian blue over there. I saw some red limousine, so that was the first for me. Excellent. So you got to see a lot of different stuff, and I, I think that's a, a great experience to go on with your class. And I, I should say Jessica's been our, our podcast producer for the last over the last year, and she has done a great job doing some of the different social media, doing some of the different aspects. And I'm, I'm going to switch a little bit while we've got you on. What, what have you learned through that process uh, that has helped you through working with the podcast, the social media, some of the questions that we get? What's What's been beneficial to you? So being on the podcast and helping you guys out, I've learned so much. Coming into this, I didn't really have any background in the podcast area at all. And I feel like now that I've 
done this and I know how to set it all up. I've actually taken a couple classes that involve podcasting and I feel like I've really advanced in those because our teachers show us all different things. Like I use Premiere Pro to edit, but they're like auditions where to go. So now I've been using Audition to like really edit out all those little ums and coughs and stuff like well, that. Well, not on this podcast. <laughs> you don't have to. Do oh yeah, no, not on this podcast at all. But yeah, so I feel like I've really gained that knowledge and podcasting is definitely becoming one of those top tier things in the industry. So it's kind of interesting to be able to help out with that in the future. Excellent. Well, we appreciate all your work that you've done for us, and it sounds like you you were able to take a great tour. And we talked about podcasts, so we've got this one, and we just released a new one this week called Bovine Science with BCI. So if you're interested in that, it's also available for download. But to get to our topics at hand, and, and I want to ask Bob and Philip, I'm going to start with you guys and say, one of the things that comes up is people talk about, should I, I know I should separate my heifers from my mature cows because they have different nutritional needs they have other needs that we may want to keep them apart but it's not easy to do so you're going to have to convince me that it's really worth it to separate them and feed them separately from my mature cows well i'm going to maybe start with a couple of definitions or what i perceive so we typically keep our replacement heifers separate from the mature cows in in most herds meaning that after weaning up to the time they're first bred those, those heifers uh, are not with the cows. They're at a different stage of life. Then the real question becomes, in, after I get them bred for their first pregnancy, do I, can I just dump them in with my pregnant cows that are out there with calves? And, and some, some would say, well, on a pasture situation, maybe that's not that much of a problem. But as soon as you bring them in to where they're, you're hand-delivering the feed, I think that's when it's really important that they be separated. Uh, and the main reason is because they do have new, different nutritional needs. But another reason is kind of has to do with just the, the physical size and dominance in that I'm going to lead off by saying one of the reasons to separate them is a mature cow is going to not allow a heifer, a much younger animal, to have complete access to the feed and water and those kinds of things. So I'm going to say from a dominant standpoint, it's really nice to give those young, smaller animals uh, their own space where they don't have to to compete. Well, even by the time that the heifer gets to her first calf, we're expecting her to be 80 to 85% of her body weight, which means she's given up 350 pounds to the, some cows. There's a pecking order out there and they're, they're at a at a disadvantage. Yeah, 300, 300 pounds is a significant advantage. Yeah, so I'm going to take from the nutrition standpoint, Bob said you, we can run them together on pasture and that, you know, that's probably okay. The, the cow is she's lactating, so she's using a lot of those nutrients in that grass for productive function. The heifer's using a lot of those nutrients for productive function to grow. But when we bring them together and we start delivering feed, if I have to, I don't longer have a lactating cow. And so if I start feeding the cow herd like I need to feed the growing replacement heifer, those cows are going to get over-conditioned. And then the other thing is, hopefully, you've got your heifers bred to start calving about 30 days or so before your cow herd does, and so you're going to need to switch them to a lactation type of diet earlier than you need to switch your cow herd. Well, and kind of to contrast it, so if I fed my, you said if I fed my cows as if they were a growing heifer, they'd be too fat. But if I fed my heifers like they were a dry cow, they wouldn't be maintaining the body weight they need to do to really go into calving. Yeah, they wouldn't reach that 80, 85% of mature weight that we want them to. Well, and and, and I'll throw one other argument in there for you, Brad, to help you convince that you probably should separate your heifers from your mature cows is, you know, from a, from a health standpoint, and this is obviously later, but if there's going to be somebody that has a problem with calving, you know, you want to increase the, the amount of observation that those heifers get. And so 
they really they really do need to be separate. You can focus your efforts there. Uh, make sure you don't have calving issues uh, when you start when you get into that calving season. I think that's a great point, Brian, because you you often don't think about that, but it is easier if you have a group of like not just for the feeding, but for the management. For, for how are we going to watch them? How are we going to do observations? If I can do that, there are times though that it's easy to throw them in together, not just the heifers, but now I want to move and I want to talk at least a little bit on first calvers. So not that the replacement heifers, yeah, we keep them separate. We've been growing them separate. I can maybe keep them separate. What about those heifers that had their first calf this year? Yeah, so I'm going to, again, I'm going to really emphasize whether we're talking about on pasture or we're delivering feed. So once they get on pasture, I think you can have multiple age groupings together out grazing and that's not really a problem because we don't really have that same kind of competition to feed access but as soon as i have start having competition for feed access or different levels of energy and protein required that's when i need to separate them and that first lactation cow or first calf heifer however you want to call her she is lactating so that's a high nutrient demand and she's still growing and these are the cows that that historically we have more trouble getting them to resume fertile cycles relatively soon after calving. And so again, it goes back to, this is a group that, that kind of all behaves the same way. And it's a little bit negative, a little bit more observational intensity for calving and a little more nutrient density going into that first lactation and through that first breeding. And so, yeah, I, I agree. So basically whenever we've got a whole group of, or an age group that we're managing differently i'd like to separate them and i and i think that makes a a good answer for both those and really i'm dealing with a trade-off right it's a resource trade-off of it may take me a little bit more labor a little bit more pen space or i'm ending up overfeeding some animals if i'm meeting the nutrient requirements of other but makes perfect sense to segregate and feed them as appropriate with their nutrition brian alluded to calving and we're right on the cusp of calving season and wanted to have a, a little discussion here, and I might frame this as a debate, and you guys can take a pro or a con, because I want to get both perspectives on this. What about calving barns? Should I calve in a barn indoors? Brian, you go first. All right. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the favorite answer, which I think it depends a little bit, but I think you can make some pretty strong arguments when you get into parts of the country where you are calving and you at least have the potential for some pretty severe weather, you know, I mean, we, I'm, and when I say pretty severe weather, I'm probably here in Kansas, we kind of are sitting on that. We're kind of sitting on that area where probably isn't a great need here, but if you get much further North, really, really cold, lots of snowfall, potentially, I, th I think you can make some arguments for them. Now I know who probably will be the antagonist in this debate. So I'm going to cut some things off here. They have to be managed appropriately. So I'll, I'll leave it aside. I think, yes, there are places where they're useful, helpful, but if you aren't going to manage them, they might actually be worse than not having them at all. Is he looking at me? Uh, he, yeah. was, he was looking directly at no, you. I was staring at you, Bob. Well, and, and to be honest, this is something I've kind of changed my opinion on over time in that as a person that's helping to calve out some heifers or cows in bad weather, I really like a nice warm barn for me. The reality is I think it's really hard to manage them well because you're talking about air quality and you're talking about control of, of mud and fecal spread. It's really hard to do that well. And you can be well-intentioned and you can use lots of straw and you can use lime. Uh, and you're going to be fighting the fact that you've got a lot of cattle 
confined in a small area. So that being said, what I would really prefer is, well, let's look at our total calving decision of including timing. Maybe we shouldn't be timing our calving to coincide with times of the year where it's really likely to have bad weather. I can't avoid all negative weather events, but I could look at Mother Nature and, and ask Mother Nature, do you want me to calve my herd now? And if she says no, I think I should listen to her. And I would much rather do that than try to use a built environment to overcome that. So I, I like a nice calving facility for my comfort, but I, I am not convinced that it's best for the cow or calf. And, and it depends where you live because you're saying, I want to calve in nice weather. Well, sometimes you calve in nice weather. That means my breeding season is in the middle of July, the middle of August. It's hard to get cows to breed in parts of the country at that time of year. That's true. There's always some trade-offs. I'm, I'm going to be a little bit insistent here. A cow that has a calf that I lose that calf because he's born in bad weather isn't a value to me more than a cow that didn't get pregnant. In other words, I need to bring a calf all the way to weaning. And I and so we need to look at where can we lose calves. We can lose calves in that they never got pregnant, right? We can lose them because they aborted. Or we can lose them around the time of birth. And to be honest, the most economically damaging one is the one that happens around birth. I've got the most invested in the cow. Uh, I've got the most labor. I've got the most feed invested in it. That's actually where I'm really going to emphasize I don't like losing calves around the time of birth. And that's that's when we lose the most calves. So I want as many things going for me as possible during that time frame. That's actually when the, the period that perinatal calf mortality is the highest is right around that first 21 days after birth. A lot of it within the first 72 hours of birth because of dystocia or other issues. Dystocia and weather would be the bulk of the loss in those first two to three days. And this is my opinion. But if a calving barn could help that, why wouldn't you put one in? That, that's my opinion is I don't think it helps it enough, especially to, to build a good one. You're talking about a tremendous investment, a cash outlay. And I think I would rather spend that money in other ways. I'd like, I love calving on pasture when we can spread them out and the environment is conducive to that. So that's what I would prefer. I'd rather spend my time on, or my money on setting up the pasture system so that I can calve out on the pasture. And you so, can still have some shelters there because you're, you're, I think, including into this conversation correctly, it's not just weather, but there are the after effects of concentration of disease, pathogens, scours. There are other factors that play into it beyond. And that's been my experience. <laughs> you know, to build a structure that makes the weather less of a problem creates new problems. And I don't really like the trade. So what about a situation where you have a smaller facility, not as large an investment as resources, and you're not planning it? It's not, you're not having 100% in the facility, but you have a facility for those situations where unexpected event pops up, maybe you're using it for a short period of time, not the entire herd, but it's available. Okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. What I would say is, though, depending on the investment, now you're saying I, I build a medium investment for something I hardly ever use. So my investment per use is still a problem. And so, but if it could have multiple uses, you know, it's a, something that I store feed or equipment or something like that, but it's available for this use, okay. But now sometimes a multiple use facility isn't as perfect for calving as a specified use. So all of these are 
good reasons to have a debate among your farm management input providers and yourself and your family and figure out what's going to work best for you. And for future reference on debating Bob, when he says, I'm okay with that, that doesn't mean, that means he's not okay. I'm okay with that. It's usually followed by a but. But. So good job, Bob. Excellent. Well, let's talk to Callahan a little bit. Welcome back, Callahan. Glad that you could join us again because I know we didn't get a talk last time about EIDs and we've got Callahan Grun with us from U.S. Cattle Trace. And Bob, I, I said on a previous podcast, you were around for some of the first EIDs. Tell us a little bit about that and then I'm going to get Callahan to update us on the technology. Yeah, I was actually involved in some studies in the late 1980s when we started thinking about how to use some of the new technology that was available at that time, some electronic IDs. And at that time, we were thinking things like really robust technology that wouldn't break in a cattle operation and that wouldn't fall out, so retention. And so the idea was maybe some implantable. So these little implants that we used were basically a little glass sphere, about a little bigger than a grain of rice, that you could put under the skin of the ear. Uh, the reed range was really short, just a few inches, and but the, the positive was retention. The negatives were the FDA considered that an adulterant of food, and so we had to be sure that every animal that, that we implanted, we found, we traced, and we were able to remove that tag, that implantable tag. And so that brings up some of the things about uh, trade-offs, trade-offs in ID systems. Um, the benefit of the early system was very robust, good retention, but it had some negatives. Callahan, where are we today with electronic IDs? Yeah, and I mentioned in the last episode about how, you know, currently we're looking at RFID, low and ultra high frequency. The low frequency would be, as you're listening to this, those button tags. Yeah, those would be the button tags. You got to read it about, you know, 15 to 18 inches away at, on a good case scenario ultra high frequency would be kind of like the it's new and flashy within our industry but not really within any other industry it's like the k-tag system on your car to go right down the toll on the interstate um, you can think about it the exact same way um, bobs would be you know we're pulling pulling over handing cash out low frequency would be the same thing but we get a ticket this time and we know exactly how much we we have from each location in the ultra high frequencies flying down the interstate 65 mile an hour same thing with cattle we can read them all through an alleyway moving through that you know within the cattle trace system we're there because that's where the industry's at today from an id standpoint talking about how important that was last time um, you know we're open to ideas into the future there's a lot of work being done on facial recognition talking about another trade-off though we still do have to restrict those animals and be able to read those at this point but as that technology continues to progress and maybe we can just drive a feed truck by and read all of them at that point. So, and I've asked Callahan, so, you know, retention is a big issue. So where, where have we gone? And as far as progression on tag retention, because people, I know early people were concerned, like, okay, if I assign an EID number to this animal and it loses that tag, reassigning a number, you know, all of that. So where are we today with retention? That, that'd be the beauty of facial recognition. It would right? be. They're going to like, retain those. Yeah, ex <laughs> at least for a while. Yes. At least for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good, good question and point. We're never going to hit 100%. I mean, I don't know if you guys, uh, all of my cows will definitely rip a tag out at some point in their life. So we'll never hit 100%. Um, it's just not going to happen now. We're getting up there into the high 90s, uh, you know, percentiles on those. Um, some of these tags are designed more for feeder cattle, whether they're two-piece tags or one-piece tags. You know, the two-piece tag is the ideal scenario. Um, those buttons are pretty good in terms of staying in the ears. Uh, when we start looking at a bigger tag, um, you got trade-offs. It gives you a visual 
component that you can utilize for maybe your cowboys riding through a feed yard or um, for that cow's tag within your herd on an operation. But the trade-off is it's a little bigger. They could get it caught in things. Um, but it's never going to be 100%. Uh, the Canadian system right now does utilize where you have to put the tag in if it gets ripped out, you know, assign it a new one and report it. Um, we're not to that point within a voluntary system like ours yet by any ch chance of the imagination, but something certain to look at into the future. Well, and I think good distinction between cows and calves. And as we think about calves, why should I tag my calves? And we've talked about production reasons before, but Callahan, if you, if you had a producer ask you, why should I tag my calves? What's your response? I think identification is important for anything. If you want to measure it, then your operation uh, moving forward, measure, um, you know, efficiencies, measure um, performance on those cattle, be able to measure different genetics on those cattle. If you got different bulls and different pastures and you want to see how they're performing against their contemporaries, whatever it may be at that point, I think identification is kind of core in terms of measurement of that. Um, but then also, as you kind of look at uniformity of how you market your cattle, that's really important as well. Get outside of that, um, you know, identification is really important for not only um, participating in a system like Cattle Trace uh, that's disease traceability, um, but giving yourself an opportunity to differentiate or maybe potentially gather some information um, up the supply chain and work with some of those partners that you haven't been able to gather in the past without maybe some of those economic risks. There's some talks about blockchain and how that can um, work and operate within your operation. But, you know, rather than that big, scary word of vertical integration, how can we be more coordinated up and down the supply chain and with some vertical coordination there? I like that term. Well, and Bob, you've done a lot with data over the years. And what do you see as some of the benefits of ID on the calves? Well, I think that the two things, well, you, you made me say just calves, but on the cow side, it reproductive efficiency. So which which cows are getting pregnant when or which types of cows are not. And I need some, some way to identify that. And then calves, again, growth efficiency and growth health and, and calf health are two areas where we expect there to be some differences. We expect some clusters of calves, some calves of certain management or genetics to perform better or worse. And by adding, and, and I like the barcode example of once you start gathering the information and you really start learning how to use it, there's probably that's, lots of That's the key. There, there's probably some it's, things I haven't thought of yet. Well, I think that's the key is you have to figure out how to use that information, right? It is not just what can I do today? It's what could I do if I had a certain level of information? I think it's the same thing with, with cattle trace. And I think good discussion there of IDs. And Brian, your, your question is a great one. How do I manage retention? Because it ties into what are some of the other trade-offs? And I would say do some investigation. Figure out an ID system that fits your operation because we have enough options now. I bet there's one. Even if it's a visual tag, you can have some ID, but have some ID on your operation. So thanks, Callahan, for coming back. Sorry we didn't get to it last time. I'm glad appreciate you were it. able to rejoin us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you listening and appreciate as you send in questions. If you have questions or comments you'd like us to talk about, and I'll also remind you we've got a new podcast that's come out called Bovine Science with BCI, which is available in the same places as this podcast. And you can always send us any questions, comments, things you'd like us to discuss at bci at ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.